Go ahead and look to Revelation chapter 21, verses 21 through 27. Revelation 21, verses 21 through 27. We'll be kind of wrapping up where we left off last week with this section here. In Revelation 21, starting in verse 21, it says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life." Now, I just want to just start right off and tell you that over the years, I know in communication I've had with a lot of Christians around the country, we've had a misconception that when we get to the eternal state, we'll all be pretty much the same. Have you ever had that people talk like that? That kind of when we get to heaven, all the differences will be gone and we'll pretty much be the same? Well, I'm going to show you scripturally the Bible doesn't teach that. I mean, you look right here, you see in the section we just saw, this Bible shows us there's going to be different nationalities, and they continue in the, in the eternal state. You see how the different nations, uh, the glory, the honor of the nations will be in the eternal state. So I want to just kind of backtrack a little bit and take you through some verses that we've seen already, and maybe some you haven't, and just kind of remind you that God's plan for the many different nations has been there all along. Go to uh, Revelation chapter 5, and the different nations being in heaven. Revelation chapter 5, look at verses 8 through 10. It says, And when he, meaning Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, as you already understand, God made the different nations. We're going to see that in a second. At the same time, we know that the different nations have been reached out to by God, and He saved people from every tribe, people, language, and nation. But there's been this mindset that once we get to the eternal state, that everybody will be the same, and we'll all kind of look like each other, and, well, the Bible doesn't teach that. At the same time, we know this is talking about them reigning in the millennial kingdom, but I'm going to show you that it's more than that, more than just reigning on the earth. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Go to Revelation chapter 7, look at verses 9 through 12. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then it goes on, And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Again, we see a picture around the throne, all the different nations. Go to Revelation chapter 14. Look at verses 6 and 7. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth 
the sea and the springs of water. So again, we see all through the book of Revelation, over and over, it's pointing, they're pointing out that God has a heart for all the different people's tribes, languages, and nations. Go with me back to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. We know in chapter 12, God told Abraham that through him all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. But look at Genesis chapter 17 and look specifically at what God says to Abraham at this point. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, keep in mind that God's telling Abram that he's going to be, he had already been told that he'll be a father of a mighty nation, and his descendants will be as numerous as the sand of the sea. And for years, people have thought that he was just the father of the nation of Israel. But look closely at what God says here. Actually, from you will be coming a multitude of nations. How is one person going to be the father of a multitude of nations when genetically he's pretty much a father of one nation. Any ideas? Through his lineage, yes, but more than that, the people that are going to be grafted in. He gave birth to, as you know, God through him made the nation of Israel. And then the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that all of Israel are not just Israel, but also those who come by faith. Because actually, the father, Abraham's a father of multitude of nations because all those who trust God by faith are grafted into the nation of Israel. And so he becomes the father of multitude of nations because all of people from all tribe, people, language, and nation become descendants of Abraham, in a sense, followers of God through what God did through the nation of Israel and Jesus Christ. And that's why he's saying, out of using them come a multitude of nations. We're not going to take the time to turn there, but if you were to go look at Acts chapter 17, where Paul's talking to the Areopagus there on Mars Hill, he says that God made from one man every nation of men, that, and he determined where they'd live, when they'd live and where they'd live, and he did that so man would reach out for him or perhaps find him. And so God had all along planned that there would be a multitude of different nations and nationalities. Folks, don't lose this for a second either. Even though the Bible teaches that when we get to heaven, we'll be like angels. There won't be marrying and giving in marriage like between the angels don't marry each other. And we won't be marrying each other. But I think the Bible teaches that there's going to be men and women still, if you will, male and female still in the eternal state. Because back in the garden, we know that Adam and Eve were both created in God's image. In the image of God, he created them, both male and female. And as much as God is our Father and God should be understood in that way, we still must keep in mind that everyone here that's a female has been made in the image of God and an attribute or attributes of God are in the creation of women. As much as there's pictures of God in men, there's pictures of God in women. And how many times do we see in the Bible that Jesus, who's God, says, I wish I could have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Or then God says to the nation of Israel, how I wanted to have you come and nurse at my breasts. Why is God the Father acting like He has breasts? Because male and female were created in the image of God. 
That's why it's so important that we understand, especially in our marriages, the importance of both coming together to help understand that we need each other. It's not man's the head of the home and the woman just does what I say. They're both equal in our value in the eyes of God. We have different roles, but as we come together, we get a better picture of who God really is. Of many years, our kids have heard us say, boy, if it was just your dad, you'd miss out on a lot. At the same time, Becky will tell you, if it was just her, the kids would miss out on a lot. Our kids have been blessed because of a mother and a father together in the, the different way that we I mean, Becky and I are totally different. But when I think that she needs to, most of your fights are when you guys get into fights over the fact that how come you don't do it like I would have done it? Let's be honest. If I, if I, I, I'm looking in your living rooms, aren't I? Your, most of your fights between you and your spouse, are, they don't do it the way you would have done it. Yet you shouldn't be surprised that they would, don't do it the way you would have done it because they are different. And God made you that way. Learning to learn how to communicate and how God makes the two one is a whole part of this learning relationship. I think the Bible teaches that all of these things, the nations, the tribes, the male, the female, the differences all point to the glory of God. You see, the Bible says that his creation displays his glory, does it not? And what really makes God even more glorious, or we see him as more glorious, he can't be made any more glorious than he is, but what makes us see how glorious he is, is the multitude of ways that he displays his glory through, as we look at creation, we just start seeing all these things. And as with the more we study, even with, with microscopes or in, in telescopes, looking at minute stuff and looking at stuff out in the stars, we start to realize, man, God's done a lot of stuff, hasn't he? And we've had this weird thought that when we get to heaven, everything will be the same. Do you know where that thought came from? Small minds and sinful man who wants everything equal. But God all through time has shown us that that's never been his design. He actually said when he talks about those who are going to be saved in the parable of the soils, when he talks about the good soil, we get so focused on the bad soils and the hard soil and the rocky soil and the thorny soil. How many of us have ever taken the time to really look at the good soil? And that seed falls on the good soil and some produces a crop, 30, some 60, some 100. Even in the good soil, he doesn't expect all to be the same. And that's why we need to understand that differences are a part of God's design for God's glory. And the whole idea of trying to get rid of differences doesn't actually work to what the scripture teaches us. We just saw in Revelation 21 that in the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be nations still. And we're going to see in just a second, there's even going to be authority. There's going to be kings. But before we get to the authority and the kings, let me show you one more passage. Go to Psalm 93. Psalm 93. Look at verses 1 through 13. says, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he has put on strength, on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, O Lord, are the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Now let me take you to one more place real quick here. I'm going on memory here, but I hope I'm right. Yes, go to 46. Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, 
a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. We just read about that in Psalm 93 and the, all the roaring of the seas and stuff. We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. By the way, when's that going to happen? During the tribulation period. Remember when all the upheaval is going on on the earth? Though the mountains moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its, at its swelling, there is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, kingdoms totter, the utters, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among where? The nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Again, we see that the scripture teaches us that God will be glorified among the nations. And the, the fact that the nations continue into eternity is to His glory as well. All right, let's move on. Let's move on to the fact that back in our passage we saw in Revelation 21, it says that the kings also bring their glory into the earth. Not only will there be nations which show differences in the eternal state, the Bible says there's going to be kings. So if there are kings in the eternal state. Doesn't that kind of help us understand there have to be subjects? Will everybody have an equal set of authority in the eternal state? Not according to Scripture. So let's take a look at this. Let's go to Romans chapter 13 and let's let, a scripture, let's let the Bible kind of lay a foundation for us. Romans chapter 13. Look at verse 1. God says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. All right. Now, of course, as you know, this is talking to us here on earth that we're to submit ourselves to the authorities. And the fact that there is authority on the earth, that was instituted by God. But if we know anything about what the scripture teaches us when it comes to things in heaven or things where God dwells now, are there not different levels of angels? There's archangels and there are servant angels, if you will, guardian angels and cherubim and seraphim. And they're all different in their power and their authority and their might and their role and their responsibility. There has been levels of authority at all time throughout the Bible. We can see it in heaven in God's plan. And in the eternal state, there's going to be levels of authority forever and ever and ever. I'll let the Bible kind of explain it to itself instead of for me. Are for me instead of me. But let me just show one more passage. We just saw here that God instituted all authority. Go to Roman, uh, John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. A very familiar passage, again, dealing with the authority that's been given by God. In John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, Pilate said to Jesus, you, you, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You see what he's saying? If you have any authority, who gave it to him? God did. Let me show you one more passage. Go back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. As Daniel's been praying to have God give him what the dream was and then the interpretation, he comes to realize that actually 
God is the one that's in charge of who's raising up and who's lowering people down. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of the God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So who's in charge or who's in power according to the scriptures? God. He designed authority. He determines who gets authority. He puts people in power, takes them out of power. Is that just going to stop when we get to heaven? It's not going to stop. Let me show you some more of the Bible talks about. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at verses 11 through what we call 12a. In chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 11, the saying is trustworthy and for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, by the way, if the reason I stopped in the middle of that verse, the rest of it goes on and says, if we deny him, he'll also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's just simply saying, if you don't believe, you're gone, because he has to remain true to who he is. All right, now, at the same time, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Didn't he say to the churches, I'll let you sit on my throne, just as I sat down on my father's throne? And we say, well, yeah, I mean, I can see the 24 elders around the throne of God there in heaven being the church. And, and, and I understand that we're going to rule and reign with him, you know, um, in the millennial kingdom. But I never thought that when Jesus and God the Father are there in the new Jerusalem in the eternal state, that there would be anybody else in power. I mean, Jesus is there. God's there. There's not going to be any sin. Why do we have to have kings? Why do we have to have authority? Well... The Bible teaches us that we actually are going to be ruling over some people for in, in eternity. Does anybody know who we're going to be ruling over for eternity? The angels. Good for you. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Paul's dealing with the fact that Christians are going to court with each other here on the earth. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Folks, don't miss this out. God has actually given us a picture of authority, and we've got authority here on this earth right now. And God's designed authority in that way. Yet at the same time, during the millennial kingdom, we're going to rule over the world. But in eternity, we're going to be ruling over angels. We're going to be actually ruling over angels. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. The Bible says the Spirit or the Holy Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be what with Him? Glorified with Him. The Bible actually teaches that in some way that is amazing and hard for us to grasp, God has designed that we who would trust in Him through faith in Jesus Christ, the overcomers as we looked at last time we were together, we actually are going to be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And what He receives, we receive. And He's going to rule and reign. Would we not agree that He's going to rule and reign for eternity? 
And the Bible says that for eternity, we're going to rule and reign with Him. We're not going to rule and reign over the lost world because the lost world at that point will be in the lake of fire. So who are we going to rule and reign over? The Bible actually says we're going to be judging angels. We're going to be commanding angels. Oh, don't try to do it now. But, you know, the Bible actually is very clear about the fact that there's a danger. There are those people out there today that are teaching that you worship angels and you command angels and all that kind of stuff. No, you don't exercise your authority until it has been given to you. It hasn't been given to you yet to command angels. He commands the angels to look after us at this time. He's the one in eternity commanding the angels to do what they're supposed to do during the tribulation period. But at some point, when we are glorified with Him, we will become co-heirs, and we are going to rule and reign with Him. So let me ask you, who are going to be the kings then in the eternal state, according to the Bible? Because there's going to be kings, and that means there's going to be people that aren't kings. Is it the people that are kings on this earth? Are they going to be the kings in the eternal state? You're shaking your head, no, Barbara, you're right. What did Jesus say? The first will be last. The last will be first. You want to be in power? You want to move up the chain? Work yourself down in this life and watch God glorify you. All the way through Scripture, we see Jesus teaching that. He said, look, when you come to a big banquet, don't go take the best seat. Take the lowest seat. And if someone comes and elevates you up, great. But don't you, it'd be an embarrassment for someone to say someone greater than you is here and you need to be moved down. All the way through, the Bible teaches that we are to seek not to glorify ourselves in this life, but to leave that for the life to come. You know, one of the saddest things I see in a lot of churches is people jockeying for position. Wanting to be in power, wanting to have the say, wanting to get people to go on their side in the vote. I see in some churches that certain people get certain parking spaces and certain people get certain seats. Isn't that kind of sad when the Bible teaches that those of us who are followers of Christ in this life need to be the ones who are servants of all? And we're to take the, the, the low road? We don't care if we get our rights or not. We don't have to take our brother to court. We don't have to worry about whether or not we, you know, everything's done the way we think it ought to be or that we're being taken care of. We trust the Lord and we humble ourselves. And the Bible says whoever loses his life in this life will find it. Yet even in the church today, we think it's good to stomp on other people to work our way up. The Bible says if you have that attitude now, I'm going to put it to you this way, if you make it to heaven. If you make it to heaven, you'll be one of those people under everybody for eternity. But if you're willing to be what the world calls lowly, the Bible says those are the ones that are going to be ruling and reigning for eternity. Now, I'm going to chase a rabbit. You're not sure you can catch this one. So I'm not going to chase it far. But I'm going to speculate. And this is just a quick speculation. It's not in my notes, but I just want to go there. I think you might be ready to hear this. And I have scriptural backing. I won't even speculate unless there's scriptural backing. But you know, the Bible always talks about our glory to be revealed. Correct? If you look at the context of those places, and for the sake of time, we, we can't go there. Because this is just a speculation. But in the context, it's always tied to our bodies. And Paul even talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about the type of bodies that we're going to get. And we don't really know what they're going to be like yet. 
We know it's not the kind like we have now. He says the seed you put in the ground isn't what comes out. It's a different type of body that comes out. He then goes on and says, one star differs in glory from another. Some shine brighter than others, correct? I actually think that as we kind of touched on last time we were together with the city being so big that we're probably going to be able to fly or transport. I think the Bible also hints at the fact that some people will have more glory than others. I think that part of our glory to be revealed, I think part of the difference between the, as much as there's going to be levels of punishment in hell, there's levels of reward in heaven for eternity. The Bible teaches it. I think it may also be tied to what your body may be able to do and how much glory your body has. And some of the people that we think the lowest in this life who have had the faith in Jesus, the Bible says they're going to be shine like the stars forever and ever. We're not going to chase it anymore because that's as far as you can go. But I just want you to think about it. Don't worry if people recognize you in this life. Oh, I did this and no one even said thank you. I've been working in this ministry for all these years and no one even notices. They didn't pick me to sing the solo and I've got a better voice. Folks, stop jockeying for position down here. God's keeping track. And one day, not only will there be nations in the eternal state, there's going to be kings. And they're going to bring their glory into this new Jerusalem. Why are the kings bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem? Why are the kings glorified? Why are people to be noticing the glory of these kings? Because if any of you ever make it to king in the eternal state, who did it? Jesus did. And as you walk around in the eternal state with all your glory, it's just going to be pointing to Jesus because everybody knows that that person shining like that wasn't because they were impressive on this earth. They had surrendered themselves to Jesus and he was impressive. Yes, sir. When you say body, do you mean like gifts or um, physical attributes? Or... I say yes. <laughs> yep. I, we don't know. The Bible says we don't know, but we know that we'll be like, like him and I know that our bodies are going to be able to do some amazing things, just like Jesus' resurrected body did. And when Jesus in his flesh on the Mount of Transfiguration just kind of was transfigured and, and the, real, the real him inside his flesh got to shine there on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know what I'm talking about? It was pretty amazing, wasn't it? I mean, all of a sudden, everything about him just started to glow. I believe the Bible teaches that there's going to be such a thing for all of us as well. I'll even tell you, I think that's what happened to Adam and Eve and how they were naked and felt no shame. Yet at the moment that they sinned, they all of a sudden realized they were naked. Listen to me. I believe that Adam and Eve had a glory, a Shekinah glory, just like God. I believe that they glowed. What happened to Moses when he was in the presence of God just for those 40 days and 40 nights, face to face, being taught by God? He started to glow. The body, it was just a reflective, but just being in his presence, he started to glow just in reflection in his flesh. And when he came down off the mountain, he was glowing from being in the presence of God and people were scared of him. He had to put a veil over his face so people would be able to feel comfortable in his presence. And that glory started fading away. And the Bible says he kept the veil just so you would know it was fading away. But at the same time, I believe that at the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, they lost that glory. Yeah, they had no clothes, but they didn't need it. That glory was such that it wasn't really that noticeable that they were naked. But the moment they sinned, they were created in His image, weren't they? Folks, I believe for eternity, we are going to glow. 
We're going to have a glory. And the glory, I think, will be tied to our reward as well as our responsibilities. Yes, sir. Well, you can read it if you want to. Let me read it. We can go to Daniel 12.3. Go to Daniel 12.3. Again, like I said, I hadn't planned on chasing this rabbit. I got preaching. Daniel chapter 12. Look at verse 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall what? Shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Folks, we're not all going to be the same forever and ever in the eternal state. There's still going to be nations. There's going to be levels of authority. And it's all tied to our faithfulness to surrender to Jesus and be submit to the life he has for us here. Not to try to seek our own glory, but to seek the glory of others. And the Bible says one day God who keeps track of everything will reward us and will rule and reign with him. And we will shine. We will shine. Why do we need verse 27 in Revelation 21? I mean, why, why is it here? As it's been talking about the new Jerusalem, it says in verse 27, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I mean, some of us would look at that and go, well, duh, at this point, everybody that's unrighteous is in the lake of fire. There's not any unrighteous people alive anymore. Why is it necessary for God to point out that there's never going to be anybody entering in it that's like this, when at this point, they're already in hell for eternity? Why does he point that out? You asked that question two weeks ago. Well, here's your answer. It's kind of like those TV commercials where they say, act now. Seriously. At that time, there won't be anybody that even tries to get in because they've already been rejected in the lake of fire. But God is pointing out to us now, by the way, those who are like this will never get into that city. But there's still time. There's still time. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ to show the people what must soon take place. You're going to see from this point on, God is just going to be offering Offering, offering, offering salvation. One last time, one last time. Act now. There's only so many left. The door's about to be shut. When the clock stops ticking on this commercial, your opportunity to get this deal is going to be done. The reason he points this out is just simply to say, not everybody gets into this place. Make sure you're not one of these because they'll never get in. Make sure you're one of the righteous. And hopefully that causes someone to ask the question, well, how do I get righteous? Well, Let's go to chapter 22, look at verses 1 through 9. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And we're going to stop here. And I want you to look closely at Revelation 22, 1 through 5. I'm going to read it to you one more time because I want you to see Revelation 22, 1 through 5 is almost word for word what we just finished reading in Revelation 21, 21 through 27. I'm going, to, I'm going to point that out to you. So the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, go back to chapter 21, look again at verses 21 through 27. Almost the same stuff. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each gate is made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold. So here we see the street, just like we saw in 21, 22, 1 through 5, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its light is the Lamb. Isn't that said in Revelation 22, 1 through 5? And then also we see, uh, it talks about the nations and the kings will walk, and its gates will never be shut. Look at verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone does what is detestable. Again, look at verse 3, no, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His servants. Why in the world is John almost writing word for word what he just finished writing in the last chapter? Repetition is the best teacher. But I want you to understand that what's happening now and will be happening the rest of this chapter and into the end of the book is that God is going to be giving you glimpses of what is to come to hopefully entice you and excite you about what is to come. And at the same time, he's going to be offering that salvation. The whole rest of the book is an offering of this salvation. All right. So what's been added, though, in chapter 22, verses one through five? What has been added that we didn't see in chapter 21, 21 through 27? The tree of life and what else? The river. We see now that the tree of life and the river have been added. We saw in 21, 21 through 27 that there's a, a street of gold and the streets are of gold in the city. But now we see that in the middle of the street coming from the throne is this river clear as crystal of the water of life. Well, let's deal first. Well, actually, let me take you to 40, chapter 46 of Psalms. We already read it today. We're pointing out one more thing you might have missed. Go to Isaiah, uh, sorry, Psalm 46. Psalm 46, again, look at verses 1 through 11 one more time. God's a refuge, our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we won't fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. In the midst of all this stuff, and then if you keep reading, he talks about how the nations are going to rage and, 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 and uh, he brings wars to an end and all this kind of stuff. 
Right in the middle of God saying, showing us that we don't need to fear when all this chaos happens on the globe and how nations are going to rage, but he's going to bring war to an end. In the middle of it, he talks about this river that's going to flow in the city of God where God is. Any idea what that river is? It's the one we just read about in Revelation 22. It's been God's plan all along. And so I'm going to come back to in a second what the river represents, but it's also, keep in mind, what we see here is literal and symbolic at the same time. It's an actual river, going to be a really cool river. Personally, I can't wait to swim in it. As I travel around, one of the things I really look forward to when I go up north to preach is jumping in clear, freshwater streams or ponds. You know why? No gators. <laughs> I'm one of these people that I would rather swim in fresh water than salt water. We live right here by the ocean, and that's great. But whenever I get out of the, the ocean, I feel sticky and salty, and I have to come back to my pool and jump in my pool just to feel clear. No gators. <laughs> but when I go up north and I go preach, I just came back from Michigan, and whenever I see clear water, I take off my shoes and my socks and I jump in it. Sometimes I jump all in it. It's not quite there in Michigan yet. It snowed the week right before I got there. So the water was 52 degrees, and I decided not going to jump all the way in. But this summer... This summer, as we travel as a family and go all these places, one of the places we're going to end up in August is Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire, Alton Bay, New Hampshire. And if you don't know anything about Lake Winnipesaukee, let me tell you, the water is so clear and so beautiful. While you're out there swimming, I drink it. I just drink the water because it is amazing. It's deep, 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 deep lake. And I'm one of these people that cannot wait to get in that river in the millennial kingdom that we saw in Ezekiel that's going to flow from the throne and get deeper and deeper and deeper and turn the Dead Sea fresh. I can't wait to go play in that river, but we're going to deal with the river in just a second. It's a literal river that's flowing from the throne, but it also represents something as well. But not only that, we also see back in the garden, uh, the, the tree of life was available to Adam and Eve, but they chose to eat from the tree that God said not to eat from. You, you know what I'm talking about. And if not, let me take you there real quick. Go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, look at verses 8 through 17. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, the one that has flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's what? Isn't that interesting how this sure sounds a lot like the New Jerusalem? How there's this awesome river, and there's gold, and there's a tree of life. The gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. All right? So we see now that God planted this garden, and it's, it's got clear rivers, and there's gold. A picture we can see of what's going to be like in eternity. And the tree of life. Go ahead. Well, yes, but thank the Lord, temptation will be gone at the, in, the, in the eternal state. But again, he says the tree of life was there. 
And for years, I used to think that, that Adam and Eve, if the moment they ate of it, they would live forever. And I used to think that Adam and Eve never ate of the tree of life. They only ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But I actually think that they did eat from the tree of life until they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I think that, and I'm going to show you why I think that for where we're going in a second in Revelation. I used to think that it was there, but they never ate of it. They only ate from this other tree and the other trees. And I used to think that if they ate of it once, they would live forever. And that's why they never ate of it, because they didn't live forever. They obviously couldn't have eaten of it. I think that they did eat of it. The Bible doesn't say they didn't eat of it. And I actually believe, as I'm going to show you in the book of Revelation 22 in a second, that we're going to eat of the tree of life that's in eternity. And I think we're going to keep eating of it. I'll show you why in just a second, so just stick with me. As you know, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in doing so were removed from the garden and kept from the tree of life. Go to chapter 3 and look at verses 22 and 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God set out, set him, set out, sorry, sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here we see now that God kept, kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, and he set this angel there with a flaming sword that says, you can't get back to the tree. The tree still exists. We see it now in eternal state. It's still going to be there. But now man can't get to that tree unless it's on God's terms. Keep that in mind. All right? Now, in the New Jerusalem, we see the tree of life is there. And it's to be eaten, by, eaten from by everyone who's given entrance into the eternal state forever and ever. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Look at verse 7. Let me remind you of the promise that he told the churches. Revelation chapter 2 verse 7. He was an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is where? In the paradise of God. All right. You know what kind of jumped out at me as I was writing my notes? I had already done my prep study. But this morning, I got back from Michigan, actually climbed into bed about one this morning. And when I got up this morning to kind of take all my notes and put them into a written form for tonight, a thought hit me that I had never thought about. Because I've often wondered, the Bible says the tree's on both sides of the river. Did you remember reading that in Revelation 22? It seems like there's one tree, but it's on both sides of the river. And I thought that was kind of cool. I've often wondered about it, and then it hit me. You don't have to cross the river to eat of it. You don't have to cross the river to eat of it. You don't have, it's not on one side of the river or it's on both. It's available to everybody that's in that city. But notice how it produces its fruit each month. Go that back in Revelation 22. It says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb and through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, each yielding its fruit each month. Some people even think that one month it'll be a certain kind of fruit, the next month it'll be another kind of fruit, and so on. Might be. Hey, we don't know. That'd be kind of cool. I don't think it's going to be month of years because we live that mess here. You know? Well, again, we're going to talk about this. We, there's going to be a measurement of time somehow in heaven. There have to be. 
If it produces its fruit each month, there has to be some measurement of time. Now, whether it's the same way we measure time now, I don't know. Because as you've already seen, in the new eternal state, there's no sun and moon. The glory of God is what shines everything. There's no night. So we don't know if it'll be a 24-hour day period and then so many days in a month and all that. But there is going to be time. And if God made a garden back in the beginning and had man work in the garden, I think we're going to have work. I think we're going to have responsibilities. Of course, now work is hard because when we work the ground, it fights against us. And if you ever, I mean, we're having air conditioning issues because we live on the beach and it rusts away every five years. Those of you who live on the beach, you don't want to put your outside unit facing the ocean, as we're learning. And uh, um, what I want you to understand is, is the, the world we live in is under decay all the time. In the eternal state, it's not going to be like that. Work won't be a chore. Work will be a, be, well... Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I think you're going to enjoy. Actually, some of you probably don't even feel like what you do is work. You love what you do. That's how I feel. I remember a lot of times when we go on, quote, unquote, vacation and someone finds out I'm in the area. They say, would you like to preach? And I'm like, well, yeah. They go, well, you don't mind working on your vacation? It's not work for me. That's fun. I love what I do. I think for eternity, the Bible teaches you're going to be doing stuff. You're going to be creating. So with that in mind, the Bible shows us that there's going to be time measured at some, in some way. But why does the Bible then say that the leaves are for the healing of the nations? If there's no more sickness, no more death, why are the leaves needed for the healing of the nations? Well, I think this is where we're going to try to end up today. I think all of these things, even though they are literal, are also symbolic of salvation and how God provides it, but he wants us to continually come to him. Let me show you what I mean. The river continually flowing, right? That's the difference between a river and a lake. The river continually flowing represents salvation in the Holy Spirit. Go with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, let me remind you of verses 35 through 37. Sorry, 37. Start in verse 37 through 40, uh, 39, 37 through 39. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we know that scripture, the Bible teaches us that the, the rivers of living water represent the Holy Spirit, which also means salvation. If you've got the Spirit of God, you've been saved. It's an eternal thing. It's a wonderful thing, but it's a continually flowing thing. The tree of life represents eternal life as well. Salvation. Go to Revelation 22 and look at verse 14. Revelation 22, look at verse 14. We'll get to that next week, but I want to just point it out to you tonight. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. And that they may enter the city by the gates. All right, again. How do, you, how do you wash your robes? Well, go to Revelation 7. The Bible's already told us how we wash our robes. But those who have their robes washed are the ones who have the right to the tree of life. Revelation 7, verses 13 through 17 tell us that. Revelation 7, verse 13 and following. Then one of the elder, elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? 
I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. How? In the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on his throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall never hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, folks, that river that continually flows from the throne of God for eternity is a picture of what? The Holy Spirit, which is salvation. The tree of life that is there, that was in the garden, was available to them to eat continually from until they disobeyed. And he says, you can't eat of it anymore unless you meet the terms. Guess what? It is now in the New Jerusalem, in the eternal state. It's on both sides of the river. It's producing fruit each month, 12 different types of fruit. And on top of that, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. What's the tree of life? Salvation. What are the leaves of the fruit each month? Salvation. It's continuing forever. All these are literal and real things. And I think personally, why do you take the Lord's Supper? To remember. Do you get saved again when you take the Lord's Supper? No, what's the purpose of the Lord's Supper? It's to remind you what he has done. It's your saying, Lord, just as much as I need physical food and physical drink in order to live physically, I need your body to take care of me spiritually. That's why Jesus said, whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood. If they don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, they have no part of me. He's talking about we come and we eat of him, if you will. I think that God is going to set it up that is a continual reminder for eternity we don't have to say, oh, I already drank of that river. Buddy, I'm going to stick my neck in it and drink it all the time. I'm going to go eat of that tree and enjoy it. Oh, it's not going to make me saved. I'm already saved. But it's going to be an awesome, tasty reminder. It's going to be a wonderful thing. Let me ask you a question. Are you saved or are you being saved? Guess what? It's going to be that way for eternity. It's going to be that way for eternity. Don't think for a second that once we get to heaven, once we're glorified, we can sit back on our laurels and say, Aha, I'm here. I've made it. Did you catch it? I think for eternity, we're going to be acknowledging I'm here because of what this river represents. The Spirit of God who drew me. I'm here because of what this tree represents. The salvation that God gave me, eternal life. And I will drink of it and eat of it forever and ever and ever because it all comes from where? From God, from His throne. The leaves are healing of the nations. Doesn't have, give me any bellyache about the heels being for the healing of the nations. It's not because they get sick. I think it's just going to be a wonderful reminder. It's going to be a wonderful reminder. Who knows? Maybe you'll make salad out of it. I don't know. Maybe in eternity I'll like salad. I don't know. I love one of these comedians that said, salad is not food, it's just a promissory note that fruit, food is about to follow. <laughs> Let me show you two things real quick. For the sake of time, you can write these down and just look at them later. In John 14, verse 4, Jesus told the woman at the well, if you ask me, I will give you living water and it will flow up for eternal life. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, the Bible says, Do not, please understand what the, don't be foolish and understand what the Lord's will is. Don't be drunk with wine, but be what? 
be filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, that be filled is in the command, and it's in the tense in the Greek, which means be being filled. In other words, it's not a one-time thing. It's a daily drinking. It's a daily trusting. And if God's teaching us now to be being filled with the Holy Spirit, I think the Bible teaches that for eternity, we will be continually saying, I'm here because of you. I'm here because of you. Not, ha ha, I've made it. Haven't we had in the back of our mind, one day I'll get there? I think when you get to heaven, you won't say, I got here. You'll say, I'm here because of you. And that river reminds you that you're here because of him. That tree reminds you that you're here because of him. The leaves are the reminder that you're there because of him. And for eternity, we will worship him and give him glory because we get to enjoy that in wonderful state. And it's because of him. And they're just reminders of what he's done. But I want to, in the time that we have left, and I know it's going to be kind of rapid fire in the five, six minutes that we have. I really want us to look at Revelation 22, verses 6 and 7. That way we stay on track and be able to finish next week. Look at verses 6 and 7. Please look closely at these two verses. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant must, what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. All right. Yeah, exactly. It's repeating what we just saw at the very beginning, isn't it? But remember, the beginning of the book... We saw in Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3, Revelation 1, 19, and Revelation 4, 1, that these things must take place. So don't miss this. The prophecy in this book is to be taken literally. The, if it says four times in the Bible, three times, two times in Revelation 1, once in Revelation 4, and another time here in Revelation 22, that these things must take place. Let me remind you, that's the exact same word that we see in the Bible that says you must be born again. That there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's the same word. And if these things must take place, they're not symbolic. They're literal. They have symbolism. They have meaning. But they're literal. They have to happen. And then look at how God is described in verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Keep in mind, the Bible says that in, in the book of Peter, that when the prophets wrote, they weren't writing, but they were being led of the spirit as they wrote. And a lot of times they didn't even know what they were writing about. They knew that it was for a future generation and they were curious to find out what God wanted to say through them. But understand that God is described as the spirit the Lord, the God, the spirit of the prophets. Go with me real quick to Luke 24. It's not just talking about the prophecy in this book, is it? If he's saying the spirit of the prophets. He's referring at this time now in the book of Revelation to all the prophets and how they've been pointing to this culmination in the book of Revelation. Go to Luke 24. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. This is that on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the two men were on the road to Emmaus. They thought he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. They were discouraged. They started heading home. In verse 25, the scripture says, And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, plural, have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer for these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
In other words, as he was reminding them that his death and his resurrection all were necessary, he took them back to all the prophets, all the scriptures, put them together to say, hey, well, everything that you just saw that now you're not sure about, the Bible's been saying it all along. Keep going, chapter 24. Go with me to verses 44 through 49. Then this is now the two men, they understand that it's Jesus. When he reveals himself to them in the breaking of the bread, he disappears. If you remember the story, they run back to Jerusalem. They go to that upper room where the rest of the disciples are. And Jesus shows back up. And in verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. If you've been with me in this study of Revelation, you've hopefully realized that most of the book of Revelation had already been written in the rest of the Old Testament. All Revelation does is compile the prophets. So when God describes himself at the end here, he says, the God, the Lord of the spirits of the prophets has sent me to show you what must soon take place. Revelation is not a book by itself. It's actually a compilation of all the Old Testaments. And listen to what Jesus says again. He said, and these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Didn't we just tonight read two times in Psalm 46 that there's going to be a river in this city where God dwells? Well, Jesus said that has to take place then, doesn't it? Folks, don't get sucked into the world's idea today that the book of Revelation is just some apocalyptic writing that doesn't make any sense. And it just, or it's already already happened and all this stuff. Jesus said everything written about him must be fulfilled. A lot of it has in his first coming, but there's actually more about his second coming than there is about the first coming. And it all must happen. Now, here's where we're going to wrap up tonight. Revelation 22 says, just like it did at the beginning of Revelation 1, blessed are those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. How do we keep it? See you next week. <laughs>